You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And spring ball is right around the corner. So for this episode, of course, is joining me, Will Miles, from his site, readandreaction.com, and on Twitter, at Will Miles SEC, we're just a couple of weeks away from uh, from spring practice, of course, and teased it last week, but we're going to be doing uh, some uh, spring previews here and answering some of our viewer, listener, Twitter follower questions that, uh, that were sent in, so uh, a lot to break down and look forward to uh, this episode of Gators Breakdown as we preview spring football. Yeah, man, it's March. It was 60 degrees up here in Pennsylvania today, and and it's uh, it's getting a little bit warm. It's time to get ready to go, man. So never never a uh, now that Mullen's taken over and we go to bowl games every year. Seems it seems like a much smaller uh, smaller time frame between when the when the season ends and then recruiting and then and then the spring game. So yeah, we got uh, just a little bit of a little bit of time left until we get to see the team take the field again, and and obviously it's a positive thing to see them out there and talk about what we're going to try to see that that improves this year in twenty twenty. Yeah, good bit of questions. Uh, some good questions uh, that were sent our way from uh, most of them sent on, on uh, Twitter. So um, glad um, that listeners out there uh, feel uh, will feel included uh, in sending their questions in, and uh, a lot of uh, we'll dive heavy into uh, the quarterback position uh, of Kyle Trask, but the offense as a uh, complete picture as well. As well, before we wrap up, we'll uh, look into uh, some recruiting with the big, big visit weekend coming up, Junior Day, March 7th, uh, 6th, 7th, uh, just coming up weekend as well as looking back at a couple of commits the Gators got last week. Before we get there, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the past Gators Breakdown episodes there, as well as News for Jacks coverage of the Gators. And be sure to follow us on social media on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. And as a reminder, come see me at a speaking engagement for the Fighting Gators Touchdown Club in Gainesville on April 23rd, right after the spring game on April 18th. So there'll be plenty, plenty to discuss there. Rest of the schedule this spring consists of strength and conditioning coach Nick Savage on March 26th and head coach Dan Mullen on May 28th. So, Will, let's go ahead and get straight into uh, the questions for this Q&A session here of looking at the offense for uh, spring practice, our spring preview here on Gators Breakdown. So this is from sup underscore doc at PSL underscore Gator on Twitter. And what improvements do you want to see from Trask, Jones, and Richardson? And will the offensive line spring performance determine how the fall goes? 
Uh, we'll dive into the offensive line a little later as well, but uh, we can include it in some of this talk here. And also from Felicia Earnshaw, what kind of role do you see Emory Jones playing this year as quarterback, assuming Kyle Trask is QB1? And that's still somewhat a debate out there if, <laughs> if Kyle Trask needs to be uh, QB1 from some of the uh, – uh, get your contingent out there, especially uh, on Twitter and message boards and stuff. Uh, a fun, fun debate uh, I got into over the weekend on Facebook. So <laughs> wasted, wasted a good bit of time on that. But so look, uh, we'll, we'll get into it uh, from uh, a lot of research Will and I have done on this topic over the weekend, uh, late last week over the weekend and stuff. So look, as well as Trash played last season, one instance he can get better is completing the deep ball. That's one of the uh, arguments um, and debates got into over the weekend. Now, look, I, I don't think the deep pass is a staple of, of Mullen's offense, and while Florida did pass more last season because of you know, mostly because of a lack of run game, it's not like the offense changed all that much except for they passed the ball more within the same scheme of Dan Mullen's offense. Uh, so with that, you know, there'll be a, still a good bit of screens, uh, especially with the run game struggling like it did. A lot of those uh, an extension of the run game. Also to get the ball into the wide receiver's hands uh, as fast as possible. Let them go make a play. And uh, we saw the, the athleticism of those wide receivers on display this past weekend at the NFL Combine. Though. You know, so you know, get the ball in their hands. Let them go make a play. Uh, and look, I don't think so many screens were called to, to, to make up for Kyle Trask's arm strength. Is that an issue? Yes, but uh, I think the reasons I listed were more of a reason, you know, but it still doesn't mean the issue isn't there. So, uh, Will, you and I both wasted a lot of time uh, with the help of SEC StatCat and their uh, passing matrix chart uh, there. So, uh, huge... Uh, Thanks and kudos to those guys and the work they do there at SEC StatCat. So if you guys haven't checked it out, go check it out uh, there. So now I found that of Trask, 237 completions last season. 70 of them were caught behind the line of scrimmage, good for 30% of his completions. Um, now, it may not be fair to compare to, to Joe Burrow from this past season, the historic season that he had, the stats he put up. Uh, but just as a comparison, you kind of give a, a ceiling look there. Of Burrow's 402 completions, only 55 were behind the line of scrimmage. That was good for only 14% of his completions. 30% of Trask's completions were behind the line of scrimmage, 14% for Burrow. So now, now one reason I'm kind of bringing up the, the arm strength thing issue that uh, some uh, out there, you know, you know, that maybe reason Trask throws so many screens was because of his uh, arm strength and well, you know, if that's the case, one way to combat that and look at it from a different angle was what Felipe Franks did in 2018. Franks threw behind the line of scrimmage 35% of his 175 completions, so 5% more than Trask, uh, even with the bigger, stronger arm and an offense that could run uh, to set up play action for some deep shots. More completions behind the line of scrimmage for Franks in 2018. So, you know, with that bit of info, it could be said that that throws behind the line of scrimmage are more of a staple of this offense in two seasons under Dan Mullen, um, and you're just not going to see a lot of deep throws. That doesn't mean it can't be better uh, uh, from Kyle Trask when those types of plays are called. So, Will, I know you detailed it in your latest article at Read and Reaction here, but on throws completed at 20-plus yards, only 6% of Trask's 237 completions came from there, and only 10% of his 354 attempts were 20-plus yards. So Burrow completed 
at 20 plus yards, while 14% of his attempts were 20 plus yards. So Franks in 2018 did attempt and complete more deep balls than Trask. Uh, with Franks, his 175 completions, 9% came at 20 plus yards, and 15% of his attempts were at the 20 plus yard mark. So now you can take that in a myriad of ways. Uh, we're, you know, were more deep shots called for Franks? Did he just trust his arm more and wanted to throw deep more? Did the run game open up more shots down the field as compared to, to Trask? Um, those percentages may not seem like a lot, but over the course of a season can, can add up. You know, can hitting one, two, three more deep passes a game uh, be a difference? And you know, to look back, you know, Burrow completed 10% of his throws of 20-plus yards. Frank's right behind at 9%. Trask only hitting 6%. So you know, that was good enough to win 11 games, Will. Uh, but this percentage uh, you know, is, could be the difference in beating a, a Georgia in LSU, competing in the SEC. When you go to Atlanta, you hit. You won't be playing better defenses there. So I think it's you know fair to ask there. You know, Travis played remarkable this past season. But if we're looking for an improvement for, the, for for this program to take the next step, for this offense to take the next step, for Kyle Trask to take the next step, then look no further than you know Kyle Trask hitting some more passes down the field. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that absolutely is going to have to improve. And and one of the things that you saw when he was playing teams like Georgia or even some of the other games where he struggled, like against Missouri and against Auburn, um, I think one of the things that's sort of a hallmark of those teams was that they each had a very good linebacking core and they were able to take those passes that, that started out behind the line of scrimmage and limit what the, what the Gators were able to do. So in those three games against Georgia, Missouri, and Auburn, those were the three games where, other than the South Carolina game where there was a deluge during the game, but in those three games against Georgia, Missouri, and Auburn, when Trash completed passes behind the line of scrimmage, he completed 15 of 15 in those games, but he only averaged four and a half yards in attempt. And then when you go and look at what he did for the overall season, he completed 96% of those throws for 8.1 yards per attempt. So in games where Trask was able to complete the ball behind the line of scrimmage and Florida was able to turn that into significant yardage, Trask put up very, very good numbers. Once the defense was able to take that away, then he struggled. And I think that's reflected in some of the other numbers as well. Mainly, and, and I highlighted this in my article today, but mainly the idea that he's far more effective, and you see this when you look at the tape too, he's far more effective at throwing routes that break in between the hashes. So the receiver starts on the outside, but then ends up coming back towards where Trask is throwing the ball than when he's trying to throw the ball outside the numbers. So if he's on the left hash, throwing to the right hash, he struggles a little bit. If he has to go downfield outside the numbers on the sideline, he struggles a little bit. And some of that is accurate. And, and actually, it's it's interesting because when you look at the tape, he typically goes to the re- to the right receiver. It's just a question of does the ball get there or not, and that's a question of of arm strength. And then it's also a question of what is the defense doing to dictate to Florida what's what's going on. So, um, I was really surprised when I went back and looked at the Georgia game how much two deep zone they played against Florida. But it starts to make sense because if your linebackers can cover those underneath routes, then you really force. Trask to try to fit the ball into tight spaces going downfield to throw balls against the sideline. And if you can't run them out of the deep zone shells, then the quarterback's going to struggle. But um, that's also true for any sort of quarter. Any quarterback where the defense is allowed to play too deep, it's going to be hard to take advantage. It's going to be hard to throw deep because you can't run them out of it. They don't have to bring up that extra safety. You don't get an opportunity to take take deep shots. So I think, you know, it, it 
Yes, I think in Mullen's offense, and I think in Mullen's offense with Trask at the helm, they are probably going to take less deep shots than they would with Franks at quarterback. However, I think some of the some of that comparison is a little bit unfair because Florida was able to run defenses into having to bring a safety up to stop the run, and then Franks was able to take shots over the top, and that just wasn't the case last year. I mean, uh, Mullen really had to abandon the the running game early on, and then when he did he started to supplement it with different screen passes. And that's sort of where you see, I think Trask um, throwing more screen passes than, than, than Frank's did the year before. Right. And, you know, this was not to uh, you know, try and, and talk people out of Kyle Trask, not having any deficiencies on, on my end. I just, th- I do think there are reasons for it and uh, looking at it and especially comparing that to Felipe Franks and how many screens Franks had to throw and, and rely on, you know, more percentage of his throws going behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, as compared to Trask, uh, it's just uh, you know, an area for improvement. But for Trask, you know, getting some more help around him, I think uh, will help that. Maybe uh, as Will, as you mentioned, you know, the, the coverages deep are, are not set up for that. And you're, there's a lot of. I remember the the one play uh, you picked out uh, in the Georgia game. I think you hit Trevon Grimes on the on the sideline. You see, it was perfect timing, a perfect throw, and it definitely had to be. Um, you know, but Georgia had two guys in the area, like so. Like you said, they they kind of forced that throw, and it had to be a perfect throw from from Kyle Trask. Uh, and, and that was one instance he did it outside on the numbers on the sideline. And Trevon Grimes goes up and, and, and gets it, make, makes a you know uh, kind of a, a more of a high point catch, and you know, Georgia defenders couldn't get there in time. Um, but that was still a, a, a coverage that was really meant to defend that type of pass. Uh, but was a, a great throw by Trask. Just need that on a little more consistent basis. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 here's the thing: like Trask averaged 8.3 yards per attempt last year. The NCAA average was 7.7, so he was an above-average quarterback throwing mm-hmm. the ball. I, I don't think that when I look at his stats, I, I don't necessarily think there's a whole lot of space for him to improve considerably. When you look at it, he completed 67% of his passes. Like I said, 8.3 yards per attempt. His interception rate was really low, and that's maybe the one thing that that is a little bit alarming when you when you watch the tape is that there are a lot of balls that sort of hang out there that the defense didn't get, and if they get in 2020, may have the ability to change a game and, and put Florida behind the chains considerably or behind early if, if a ball gets taken the other direction. But um, beyond that, I mean, a QB rating of 156.1 um, through the air, Trask was really, really good last year. And I, I think that's one of the things that people are going to sort of have to accept is that, you know, it, when you look at Burrow, and I, and I looked at him and it looked at Burroughs 2018 and then 2019 in my article today. One of the things is that the last four games of 2018, there is a marked jump in not only his completion percentage, but also in his yards per completion. So he started throwing the ball down the field more at the end of 2018 and carried that over into 2019, as well as the accuracy. There isn't really an uptick in production for Trask towards the end of 2019. And so I don't necessarily think there there's no there's no indication that there's another gear. Whereas in 2018, you could have looked at what Burrow did towards the end of the year and said, Hey, there's another gear for this guy to hit. Now, I don't think anybody, (laughs) even myself, and I love Burrow, but I don't think anybody expected him to have quite the jump that he took from 2018 to 2019. But, you know, this is also the thing we always talk about with recruiting. Can you win with just sort of borderline top 10 classes? Sure, there have been teams that have done that. But to pick that outlier and say that's what we expect, I think, is is probably not the, be- the best thing to do. You certainly don't want to rely on it. 
Trask is a very good quarterback. Is he going to transition from very good to elite? I don't necessarily see that in the stats you know, when you look for the entire year or when you look towards the end of the year to see if there's a major uptick. So I think we can kind of expect a little bit of improvement as he gets, as he gets some, uh, gets some more experience under his belt, obviously an easier schedule. So I suspect we'll see just Mm -hmm. better stats because he's not getting thrown right into the fire against Auburn and Kentucky. And, and those guys, he's going to have some of those cupcake games early on to pad the stats. But, um, at the end of the day, if, if people are expecting a burrow type leap, I think that's probably misguided. What we should probably expect is is somebody who goes from just managing the game to somebody who might be able to win them a game or two when the you know when when the offensive line gets shut down or when the running game gets shut down. Yeah, I think the narrative I just kind of want to get rid of was that you know Trask was a proponent of a dink and dunk offense, and I just I, I don't you know it was not a dink and dunk offense uh, to me uh, when I look at it here. So. Uh, if you're going to call it a dink and dunk offense with Trask in, in, in there, then you would have had to do it when Franks was in there, too. Uh, so. It's an inside-the-numbers offense, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. there's not a whole lot that goes to the sideline. And I do think that has something to do with arm strength. There's there's no shame in saying, hey, the guy throws to the right guy and sometimes is limited in terms of where he can make the throw. I'll take that I'll take that all the time. Somebody who completes 67% of his passes. The place where the place where Trash struggled last year and didn't contribute as much value as Felipe Franks did the year before is really the running game. It's 63 yeah. attempts for eight yards. And you know, Franks had like 320 yards the year before. And all those fourth downs against South Carolina where where Franks was able to lead the comeback, all the running that he did against Michigan. The only game that we really saw Trask run the ball even at all was was against Virginia. And other than that, it was pretty limited all year long. Now, he did have the knee injury against Auburn, but still, a Dan Mullen offense, you expect to see more than 63 attempts for eight yards, even when you factor in sacks. Because um, you got to factor in sacks, sacks for Felipe Franks, too. And like I said, the year before, he ran for over 300 yards. Yeah, I got some stuff on the run game uh, coming up as well, because it's definitely a, a place I think uh, Kyle Trash showed late in the season, uh, as you kind of mentioned, the Virginia game. But the FSU game a little bit as well, um, the 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 ability to to, to run the ball um, a little bit. So um, to kind of further the extension on what I want to see from Kyle Trask, and you know, kind of looking at some more stats there uh, in relation to um, well, another thing about the numbers and just this whatever reason the throws just popped in my head. Those back shoulder throws to Van Jefferson against the in, in the LSU game, you know, was something we haven't really seen from a Florida quarterback in quite some time there. So. Um, you know, it, it's there sometimes, as we said, more consistent uh, is, is what we want to see there. So, you know, no comparing to, to Burrow probably isn't fair, but, you know, at least gives a ceiling of how good it can be. And we'll, you know, surprisingly, 57% of Burrow's completions come from zero to 10 yard throws. Uh, and then the receiver's taking off and doing a whole lot there, uh, especially that slant that is kept hitting over and over again. Uh, a staple of that offense was something that comes to mind. But, you know, 57% of Burroughs completions come from 0 to 10 yards and 18% from 11 to 20 yards. Trask had 43% of his completions from 0 to 10 yards and 18 to 11 to 20 yards. So Trask really liked that intermediate range throws there. Uh, another surprising stat I found was Trask actually had a higher average depth of tar- target than Tula Tagovailoa, 8.84 yards for Trask and 8.75 for Tua. Uh, but here's the thing, Will. That's not, may not tell the whole story of because notable QBs in order uh, that received a good bit of playing time that were higher than, say, uh, Trask and, and Tua, Guarantano, 11.2 yards average depth of target. 
Matt Corral, 10.47. Jake Fromm, 10.44. Burrow, 9.62. Kellerman at 9.35. Bo Nix at 9.29. Before you even get to Trask and Tua. So, you know, while an average depth of target would be nice if it increased, there are many quarterbacks that ranked ahead of Trask and Tua uh, that didn't necessarily have an overall season like those guys had. So, you know, Burrow in that category and, you know, and nowhere near playing um, Bur- you know, Burrow to a track were all around the same area, and the other quarterbacks ahead of them were no, you know, nowhere near playing at the level of those three quarterbacks there. So, you know, what that what that kind of tells me were Burrow, Trask, and, and Tua had some wide receivers they could rely on to catch to catch a pass, and make something happen after the catch, and you know, get the ball to to the wide receivers. So, uh, kind of to it. Further than this, you know, I couldn't go as deep as I did on the deep ball and, and behind the line of scrimmage passes on this part. But another comparison I wanted to look at is yards per attempt for the best Mullen quarterbacks compared to Trask. Tebow in 2008, 9.2 yards uh, uh, per attempt. Dak Prescott in 2014, 8.7 yards per attempt. Prescott in 2015, 8, point yard, um, uh, 8 yards per attempt. And Trask last season, 8.3 yards per attempt. So that would have ranked third uh, for Mullen quarterbacks uh, if you're looking at yards per attempt in those great seasons of Tebow and, and Prescott. Difference there, Will, he couldn't supplement that with a running game from, from, from his own. Sure. Well, or, or from the running backs. Last <laughs> or the running backs. Yeah. But, I mean, so I think there's, there's a lot to unpack there. But the first thing I would say is that the, the target um, stats that you cited there, where you're saying how far downfield he targeted, a lot of that is dictated by score, right? If, if you're down by 25 points and you're, and you're old Miss, you're going to be chucking it down the field. Trice never had to do that this year. I mean, Florida was behind against Kentucky, and I'm pretty sure if you looked at his average target against Kentucky, <laughs> it was probably much further down the field than later in the year in games where Florida was ahead. And, and Florida, for the most part, won every game comfortably except for the game against LSU and the game against Georgia. Um, if you consider the Virginia game a comfortable win, I, I do. They were up by two touchdowns with less than a minute to go. Yeah. And um, Missouri maybe there too. So. I mean, maybe, but it was still, what, 20 to three? Yeah, yeah, the right. yeah. So, So you look at it and say Florida, Florida did not trail much at all basically after Trask came in. And so it's not – really all that surprising that he's not going down the field all that much because you're not going to take giant risks when you're up by, you know, two touchdowns against Auburn. Like, and it did kind of feel like the offense kind of just said, all right, we got this one. We've, we've gotten ahead. We hit Swain on the, on the quick slant across the middle, you know, got a couple of turnovers and are able to convert that into a lead. And we're just going to sort of sit on it for a little bit. And, and that is sort of what that game felt like. And I think that's kind of what the season felt like. So Florida's offense was very, very good in 2020. In, in 2019, I think they were 22nd in yards per attempt um, overall, but they weren't elite. They weren't a top 10 offense. I think that's kind of what we saw as they struggled from time to time, especially against better teams. And, and that's reflected, I think, in, in, in how often they went down the field. Um, you know, you compare them to a guy like Tua. Uh, that's the, Tua had some special weapons there. <laughs> yeah. three, three receivers <laughs> that they had there. And, uh, what was it, Ruggs, who ran a four-point? two three or something in the 40 this weekend at the combine so you know i i can understand completely why you just throw a little slant to him and let him run so and it was just one metric of course i mean we saw two of you know chug it down the field plenty of times sure but i mean again i i think one of the things that that you noticed in the in mullen's first go around in gainesville is how much they wanted to utilize the running backs um you know and how much they wanted to go side to side 
and and side to side opens things up to go downfield and a lot of those little bubble screens are designed to free up someone so you know games where Grimes was able to break one for a big touchdown because they got the ball to the outside and that's really what Mullen wants to do so and, it's and the first touchdown of the season will Kadarius Tony takes one you know against Miami yeah, I mean, so it's it's just a different offensive scheme than what Joe Brady's doing at LSU. Mm-hmm. And so comparing those guys side by side, um, yes, I mean, obviously you want to be able to replicate every one of Burroughs' stats from mm-hmm. 2019, but it's a different offense. And to your point, it's an offense that relies on a quarterback who can throw the ball downfield when he needs to, but not necessarily rely on that as the only way to move the ball downfield. All right, well, so, yeah, in summary there, as far as, you know, trash, arm strength, all that stuff goes here. Is there an issue? Yes. Does it need to be improved? Can it be improved? I think is the is the question. Can he do that? How does he do that? You know, how much can he improve that and, and turn? How much does that really help the offense? Schedule gets easier, as you said, but, you know, there will be a time uh, this season where uh, the defenses will test, uh, what, you know, what we've talked about here and discussed here. Uh, and make Kyle Trask make some of those big time throws time and time again. So we kind of teased it, Will and Trask and his legs, and you know, where you know, he can improve uh, there as well, and with some help from the offensive line. But you know, from, from the UT Martin, because he got some playing time in that game, even though Felipe Franks did start that game, Trask played in that game as well. But for the UT Martin game through the Missouri game, ten games there, Trask had only 23 design run attempts. So, you know, basically two design carries a game for 76 yards, good for 3.3 yards a rush on an average of 5.5 yards to gain. Only 30% of those were converted to a first down. Better late in the season, as I, as I said. The last two games of the season, FSU and Virginia, in those two games, he had eight design runs for 35 yards, averaging 4.3 yards uh, per run. Uh, on an average of 3.9 yards to gain. Uh, so, you know, he averaged more than the average yard uh, to gain uh, in those design run situations. So half of those went for a first down. Uh, he converted that. So, you know, hopefully we saw better use of Trask late in the season with his legs that that converts and transfers over to this year. As a comparison, Will, Franks in 2018 ran for 3.68 yards per carry on design runs. So Trask uh, in 2019 as a whole ran for 3.58 uh, so just, you know, a tenth of a, a yard less for their, uh, for, for Trask compared to Franks. Emory ran for 6.1 yards per carry uh, on design runs uh, during the season. So Trask not really that far from Franks, uh, you know, as far as average goes. Um, StatCat didn't have uh, the Michigan game uh, when looking at this for, for Felipe Franks. But when you're looking at averages, it's not going to change all that much uh, looking at the season as a whole. So, um, not far off from what uh, is what you know. Some numbers go from, from what Franks did in 2018. Hopefully, the last two games are more of a look at how he w- was using the run game uh, in more short yard situations, more con- you know, conducive situations for success. Uh, and also, well, you brought up too. I just don't know how much it can be gauged, and, and if we'll ever know how hurt he was after that Auburn game, and how much that limited. Uh, look, no, don't get me wrong. Kyle Trask isn't going to be Dak Prescott or Tim Tebow out there running, uh, but you know, can he go pick up two or three yards when needed? And you know, later in the season, he showed uh, he might he he might have an ability to do so. Yeah, I mean, so anybody who's ever sprained a knee ligament 
knows that it's a little bit difficult to go out there one week later and and put your put put your body on the line and go out there and run. Certainly, Trash went out there and and did the best that he could and and valiantly went out there and didn't miss any other didn't miss any other time except for when Mullen pulled him out to put Emory Jones in there. But everybody gets banged up in the SEC. And it's pretty clear that Trash got banged up, and I think having a month off before Virginia maybe gives us, that Virginia game maybe gives us an idea of what we're going to see that's a little bit different than um, than what we saw throughout the year this year. But again, he's not necessarily the most mobile guy, and I suspect that's what we'll see in, in 2020 as well. The big thing is, is that the eight yards that he's got rushing is in stark contrast to what you just cited there in terms of his yards per attempt as a, uh, you know, as designed runs. And so one of the things that he's going to need to improve on is, is just not taking the number of sacks that he took, especially mm-hmm. early on that contributes to all of these rushing statistics that yeah. you look at. Um, but the reality is, is that some of those sacks, again, when I, when I went back and looked at the Georgia tape, there were two drives specifically where sacks just absolutely destroyed the drive. Florida couldn't get the Georgia offense off the field. And so, you know, the offense bogged down because he was taking sacks in those situations. So, um, you know, the, I like looking at the overall yardage that the quarterback runs for because I do think that takes into account his decision-making ability, and that's one of the things that I think is is that you know we talked a little bit about arm strength. I'm not sure what you necessarily do about that, mm-hmm. but I think from decision-making and making sure that you get the ball out and making sure that you throw the ball away when you have the opportunity to throw it away, that you don't take a back-breaking sack. Those are the things that I think you can improve on in the offseason, things that you can improve on um, as you watch tape get experience. And so if we see Trask with 200 or 250 yards rushing in 2020, I think that's really an indication he's taken a step forward and that he's running Mullen's offense in a way that is that is as efficient as it's going to be with him at the position. All right. So to kind of move on here and, and – Keep going with the with the question here is uh, the question we received uh, about this quarterback position and you know what we can expect from all these quarterbacks. With Framer Jones, uh, to me, it's kind of hard to pinpoint his role just because we we still don't see a whole lot. Will uh, versus uh, Tennessee Martin, Tennessee Towson, Auburn, and LSU, he had 28 pass attempts. Um, 21 of those versus Tennessee Towson and Auburn. Uh, so then none versus South Carolina and Georgia where. Uh, he also really only had two rushing attempts in those close games as well. Three pass attempts versus Vandy in a blowout. One versus Missouri. Six pass attempts in the blowout versus Florida State. And then none again in the bowl game where he ran the ball four times. And you were looking at that bowl game as maybe an opportunity while you have some bowl prep to maybe uh, insert Emory Jones for some more passing. And we, and we didn't see it. So you know, we're definitely going to see it in the spring because that's the nature of the beast of, of spring practice. Uh, but, you know, I want to see him get to a point where the coaches trust him more to, to throw in games. Uh, he's coming into his third season. And if he's on the field, it's time to see confidence in, in him. But, you know, he's got to be able to check to the right play, get the offensive line signals, call out coverages, you know, basically understand what to do within the offense. You know, the best we saw of Emory Jones uh, is when he takes over for Trask in the second quarter of that Auburn game. He led a drive to a field goal uh, in a 17-13 lead that the Gators were taking the halftime there and eventually going to win that game. And it would have been easy to, to just come in and, and be conservative with Jones uh, for, from the coaching staff. But, you know, Florida wasn't going to win the game that way. We still had no idea if Trask was going to come back. And, and that drive, Jones goes three for four passing, setting setting up Florida for a field goal in a close game. So, you know, I, I don't know if the question surrounding 
Trask injuries call you know caused Mullen to be more aggressive with Emory uh, in, in that situation you know more than he showed the rest of the season or, or what it was. But you know it was such a small sample size to make a broad determination on what type of quarterback we'd be getting full time with Emory. You know so so as far as the answer to what role Emory plays you know based on what we see this spring, I really think it just comes down to overall progression from him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to be careful attributing Trask being the starter last year to um, Emory Jones not necessarily being able to take a step forward in the offense. I think I think the guys were probably pretty even. Trask probably had some advantages in the passing game and and executing the offense. But you, know, you saw it early on, like you mentioned, the the Auburn game where he was where he was key to Florida winning that game because he was able to drive them down when Trask was out. But even if you think about the LSU game, there was a significant package for Emory mm-hmm. Jones that game they brought him in down in the red zone where he threw sort of that fourth down touchdown to the receivers who were out there they brought him in late in i think it was late in the third quarter and gave mm-hmm. him a full drive when florida was in their own territory much to the chagrin of a bunch of fans who decided to second guess it after after it occurred. <laughs> but you know i think that lsu game was also sort of where you started to see differentiation between emory jones and trask right i mean they went in there with the plan to have both those guys play they saw trask play so well in that game against lsu and he sort of took took hold of the job and didn't give it up the rest of the year. I don't think that's necessarily a poor reflection on Emory Jones. I think it's a reflection on Trask and what he was able to do. So, you know, Jones is going to have the opportunity to do it again in the spring and in all the practices and and sort of wrestle that back from Trask. And and I do think there's going to be not necessarily an open competition, but I think there's going to be a competition for snaps. And that's maybe the thing that I'd like to see from Emory Jones is just that the total number of snaps that he takes goes up because he's been able to be more competitive and been able to wrestle some of those snaps away from Kyle Trask. And if he's able to do that, then, you know, we've mentioned a lot about Trask's inability to run the ball last year. Well, that's not a problem with Emory Jones. And and if you bring the passing threat to that, to where he can take a few deep shots out of those formations, again, this sort of goes back to the everybody. We talked about it coming into last year. I think the same thing holds true for 2020, sort of the the – Ideal model being the Tebow-Leak tandem in 2006 and the way that they were able to hand back and forth and sort of run on and off the field. Um, The more snaps Emory Jones is able to wrestle from Trask, the more it's going to look like that. I I don't think there's – barring injury, I don't think he's going to – I don't think Emory Jones is going to be the full-time starter, but I think he can start to wrestle some of those snaps away from Trask and, and contribute more in that way. Really, well, I think uh, I agree with just what you're saying. There. Make yourself valuable enough to where they have to play you, and and that's I think a good way of putting it. Uh, when Emory Jones gets some playing time there, so as far as Anthony Richardson goes, uh, you know, we don't really know a whole lot. Uh, we'll see a lot of basics uh, from Anthony Richardson this spring to, to get his feet wet. Uh, use this spring to get him uh, adjusted to throw, throwing in the college game. Uh, I think the running aspect of his game will just come natural. Uh, the hardest parts, you know coming into college and learning to read more complex defenses while passing the ball. Uh, Richardson made a jump in how accurate he was from his junior to senior season to, to see him hold steady with that part of his game uh, would be nice. So, you know, now this made me think of, of how we may see him used in the regular season, if we're going to move forward just a bit. Um, and you know, he's going to get four games. I, I don't think they'll burn his red shirt at, at all. Um, so yeah, I only expect to see him in four games uh, coming up this season. So you'll definitely get him some playing time versus Eastern Washington, South Alabama, New Mexico State. And we'll kind of, you know, there's three cupcakes right there. Uh, does he play uh, in all three of those games? But you know, how do you use that fourth game if those three games are the, are the ones he plays in to get him some experience? 
And you go back, Will, and we saw Mullen give Emory uh, a bit of action his freshman season versus in a big game like Georgia. You know, do we see some kind of package in, in that game to, to surprise the Bulldogs? You know, is there a time where Mullen wants to save hits on Emory uh, as a running threat uh, you know, from the quarterback position and put Richardson in instead? Emory is your backup quarterback. You still want to protect him when you can, uh, but I'm also a believer in not coaching scared. You know, injuries are part of the game. If it happens, it happens. But is there a point in the season where Mullen's like, okay, you know, let's save Emory from getting hit so much. We have a big-bodied quarterback here that, that can go convert those, you know, two yards that we need for a first down. So, but it all starts at some point, you know, in the spring where you, you know, you, you have to trust him first, and that all starts this spring. Yeah, I mean, I think Florida fans should probably hope that they don't see a whole lot <laughs> of Anthony Richardson, not because we don't want to see Richardson or because we don't think he's all that great. But I think over the last couple of years, Mullen has proven that when he doesn't feel like his guys who are who need to get reps have gotten them, he will leave them in the game. So Frank's played an awful lot in, in 2018, you know, even in games that were well in hand because Mullen felt like he needed to get him reps. I think the same can be said last year for, for Kyle Trask, where Trask would still be in the game late, and you'd be surprised he would still mm-hmm. be in the game late. And there was quite a bit of consternation among the fan base that we weren't getting to see Emory Jones. And I think a lot of the reason that he had him in there was he wanted to make sure that he got him reps because this is a guy who hasn't had a whole lot of reps. And I think the same thing can be said for Emory Jones coming into 2020. And so – I suspect that what's probably going to happen is Trask is going to start. Jones is going to get a lot of those reps when the game is well in hand. And I don't know how many of those reps are going to be there for Anthony Richardson, to be honest for it, to be honest with you. I think if he is getting reps, that's indicative that he's caught up to those two guys, yeah. which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? I guess it, it depends on how well Trask and Jones are playing. <laughs> if Anthony Richardson is getting out there and getting reps and those guys are playing great, then it's a good sign. If Anthony Richardson is getting a bunch of playing time and those guys aren't playing real well, then it's obviously a bad sign. So um, my desire would be, yeah, you get him in in a couple of those cupcake games, let him get his feet wet because you've got the four-game rule with the uh, with the red shirt. But really that you get him in where he can get a quarter and you can chuck the ball around and get used to being in there as opposed to um, you know, just putting him in there and letting him run the ball, which is kind of what they did with Emory Jones <laughs> that first year. Other than the Georgia game, like you mentioned, they had a package. But, um, but you know, that was still when, when Felipe Franks was really struggling in that game against mm-hmm. Georgia and then the game against Missouri a week later. So um, Trask hasn't shown that level of struggle yet. And if we don't see that, I don't know that we're necessarily going to see a special package for Richardson. All right, let's move on to some more questions as we move on from the quarterback position there. So I was kidding around with Will. I knew the quarterback uh, comp- uh, the quarterback talk would take uh, around 30 minutes. Well, 37 minutes. So, <laughs> uh, quarterback, 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 of course, uh, when you talk about these Gators. So let's move on to uh, GatorBoss904, who uh, sends in the question, who is the third wide receiver behind Grimes and Tony? Um, and then from Bull Gators, uh, at Riverside, LAX 39, who steps up for the senior wide receivers that left? Grimes and Coke should show out this year, but who's the next three to four options there? So go back to this first one from GatorBoss904, who's the third wide receiver behind Grimes and Tony. Um, going into spring, I guess you can label, and we'll keep Kyle Pitts out of this. We'll keep him solely for tight end for the sake of this conversation here. Um, Grimes and Tony is who GatorBoss904 lists one and two. That's probably okay going into spring, but if I had to pick a third, but I'd actually move him to number two, I'm, I think this is the spring Jacob Copeland puts it all together. Uh, I think this is the time we see him become uh, the wide receiver 
um, that's not held back and not necessarily so much because of his own doing, but Florida was just so deep uh, at wide receiver. And uh, I mean, I know he's supposed to be this big time superstar elite guy, but is he really going to go out there and play over Van Jefferson, Freddie Swain, Josh Hammond, Tyree Cleveland, guys who have so much experience and, and block well uh, and, and really you know played played so well within this offense? You know, I, I don't look at as it, at it too much as a detriment. Uh, of the performance um, Jacob Cupman put together from himself. I just think there was a lot of other options out there uh, that kept him from being on the field so much. So you guys were reliable playmakers out there that you weren't not going to put the ball in their hands. So I think this is the spring wheel where I see um, it, it would be kind of hard to label Copeland as a breakout player, uh, but you know maybe for lack of a better term, uh, a guy that really just puts it all together and really just kind of maybe is really up there with, with Grimes as, you know, a one big time one, two punch. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's, I, I mean, obviously the three guys who have experience are, are Cope, yeah. Tony and, uh, and, and Grimes and then Pitts. So when you look at the offense last year, it was mostly three wide receivers. They would split up Pitts and they would split up P Ryan. So if you think about the way the offense is set up, they're set up right now to have those three wide receivers, so Grimes, Tony, and and uh, and Copeland. And then my, the question I have is, okay, you're still going to split out Pitts, but who's that guy who sort of replaces the P Ryan role getting mm-hmm. split out there? Is it going to be Damian Pierce? Is it going to be Malik Davis? Is it going to be Keon Zipper? Is it going to be Rick Wells? Is it going to be somebody who we don't know yet from, from either the 19 or the 20 class, some of those taller guys we've talked about the last couple of weeks? Um you know, and we've seen Copeland maybe as a as a role in the backfield, so maybe he maybe him in some capacity as well. Sure. Or do you do something crazy and put Emory Jones out there <laughs> as one of the guys that you split out wide? So I, I, I don't know that we're going to see any of that in the spring game, obviously. And and the way they've done the spring game in the past is they've split the split the units relatively evenly. So we're going to see a lot of those guys out there. There's just not a whole lot of tape, at least not at the college level, of any of these guys necessarily going out there. So and and playing. So again, guys like you know Iverson Clement. And, and Naquan Wright, those are guys who might have an opportunity to split out and catch a few balls as well. So um, I guess the, the question the question of the top three receivers, I think, is pretty obvious in terms of who's been out there and who has the most experience. The question I have is, are they going to split out Pitts more often? Are they going to make him less of a tight end? Do you slide zipper into tight end so that you can have – Pitts go out and essentially be a wide receiver rather than have him line up and block and be a tight end. They're going to have to make some personnel adjustments because, you know, it's been four years of having those guys out there at wide receiver and, and all the different skills that they have. I think the guys they have now have different skill sets. I don't know if they're better or worse. I just think they're different. Now, one thing that you mentioned was Copeland not necessarily getting the ball because it had to go to all those other guys. I think we saw that in the combine where Van Jefferson yeah. just impressed everyone out there um, in terms of his ability to run routes, his ability to get separation. But it wasn't as though Florida was necessarily relying on Van Jefferson. I mean, he caught 49 balls last year, which was second on the team, but it's not as though he was catching 80 and the next closest guy was catching 40. So even though he went out there and impressed and, and was impressing during camp two years ago as well, and was clearly the best wide receiver, just the way Mullen's offense works is you throw to the guy 
who's open and the co and the where the coverage dictates. And I think that's that's really what you're going to look for is the guy who does the right thing and runs the right route and runs the route route the right way is the guy who's going to step in to that role. Is that going to be somebody like you know Jamarcus Weston? Is it going to be somebody like Trent Whittemore? Um, is it is it going to be somebody like Xavier Henderson? Um, that's something that's difficult to predict, but they may end up having to do some personnel stuff that's a little bit different than they've done in the past couple of years just to take advantage of the skill guys who've been in the program for a little while. And, Will, you mentioned, uh, you know, guys like, you know, Weston, Marks, Whittemore. This brings important for them, though, because, you know, Florida has some big-time freshmen coming in in the fall. So this is, you know, Frazier's and Henderson coming in uh, in the fall. This spring really is important for you know, those guys who got redshirted, and Rick Wells hasn't really proven a whole lot either. Uh, you know, this spring's important for those guys to go ahead and get you know the reps and make an impression on these coaches before these true freshmen that are highly touted uh, come in and start you know fighting for reps come the fall. So guys from Marks Weston and, and Whittemore, uh, we've seen some athleticism uh, from those guys in, in, in videos and going back to last spring as well. But this spring's huge for those guys as you know they with so much leaving the wide receiver position from Florida, they're going to get a chance to break through this spring. Yeah, well, I actually think that's really one of the places where you can learn something from the spring game. I think the spring game in many in many cases can be difficult to learn something just because of the way they set things up. But I remember watching last year, you know, I went down with my son and the, and the guy who jumped off the field was Kyle Pitts. Yep. And we had seen him play the year before and he'd run a few slants and they'd had him outside, but he wasn't a huge focal point of the offense. But after the spring game, you knew. That was a guy they were going to get the ball to, that he was just different in terms of his ability to be out there. So I'm really interested to see, do we see the same thing with Jamarcus Weston? Do we see the same thing with Deontay Marks? Do we see the same thing with Trent Whittemore? Is there a guy who athletically jumps off the page? And if he does, then, hey, that's the guy they're probably going to put out there and have him start to fill that role. But um, the other thing is, is that, you know, those are um, – those are guys who can fill gaps on special teams as well. And that's something that you, again, you won't see during the spring game, but just having the depth on those guys filling roles on special teams. And one of the things last year is Swain was on special teams. Cleveland was on special teams. I'm not sure you're going to be able to do that this Van year. Jefferson, Van Jefferson too. Yeah, I'm not sure you're going to be able to do that just because you won't have the depth. So some of these new guys who are coming in are going to have to fill up that depth on punt coverage teams, kickoff coverage teams, things like that. All right, move on uh, to the tight end position here. And a question from NC Gator King at Lance KI and a bunch of numbers. So uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, one question that isn't really asked is how does Zipper's development look and how will Mullen use him? While Pitts can stretch outside, Zip could be an effective blocker and receiver from inside. Does that give away to more two tight end sets? So uh, I really do think that gives away to, to some you know more tight end, two tight end sets. And we already know what Pitts can do, and, and those guys on the field at the same time can, can really open up the middle uh, for an athlete like Zipper as long as he proves to be uh, a capable blocker. I don't think you'll see you know, both of them together on each side of the, of the formation um, uh, and on the end of the line all that much. I think Pitts you know, spends a, a majority of his time split out wide. Uh, you know, but maybe where you know Pitts shift out or, or lines up outside, and Zipper is on the end line creating a mismatch versus a linebacker. I think you, I think you might see that uh, combination uh, a bit. But that won't work well if he's not a capable blocker, though, and, and the play call becomes predictable. And, and you can't just um, if Zipper is out there, oh, it's going to be a pass play because we know he can't block. So go back, you know, Mullins days, the offensive coordinator at Florida, and Aaron Hernandez is out there. That's how I see Keon Zipper being being used, and maybe, maybe will 
the we get the the ultimate comeback of the uh, the shovel pass. <laughs> uh, you know, Zipper's a lot shorter than Pitts, so he's six two, yeah. two thirty two. So he's a little bit different player, I, yeah. I think. Um, but sometimes being shorter gives you a little bit more leverage when you're out there blocking. I, I, yes, your tight end is going to have to block, especially with the way the offensive line struggled last year. I'm sure that's going to be an area of emphasis, and and you know, really being able to bring in a guy to block. And even if he is just the blocking tight end, having a blocking tight end along with Kyle Pitts in two tight end set, two tight end sets, still should leave that blocking tight end open quite a bit if it <laughs> happen to send both of them out in routes. So, yes, the development of Zipper I think will be important, but I think more than anything, the develop understanding who that fifth guy is going to be. That was one of the things that when you looked at what Mullen did in in the game against Auburn to free up P Ryan on the run part of that. He had sort of a diamond formation where he put, put a bunch of receivers out to the left-hand side. And basically, even though P Ryan got hit in the hole, he only had to break that one tackle. He was able to take it to the house. There were other times where he split P Ryan out. I mean, the Michigan game, the Michigan bowl game two years ago, where it was sort of that, four wide receiver formation, but one of them was Pirine, and that meant Pirine was either on a linebacker or a safety. He sort of swept in behind the wide receivers who were blocking and then was able to make some big plays that way. Um, and, and so who's that guy going to be? And can Zipper be that guy? Can he be a guy who allows Florida to get the matchups that they want because they don't have to take him off the field when they want to split him out wide? Can he, And, you know, sort of the same thing with Pitts. Like Pitts – needs likely to improve on his blocking a little bit, which gives him more flexibility there. And then Zipper, you hope that he's um, that he's a pretty good blocker, and then what can he do when you split him out wide? But um, if Zipper shows that he can be split out wide, I think you're going to see an awful lot of two tight end sets, and I think you're going to see a lot of two tight end sets that look more like five wide sets just because that will allow Florida to take advantage of the defense and, and some of the limitations that the defenses have in terms of being able to take on those two guys. All right, and we've mentioned this group uh, a couple of times in regards to Kyle Trask and the, and the run game just in general uh, as well, and this is the, the offensive line. So thanks to uh, Oliver Teston, uh, Ricky uh, Spitznogel, and uh, Bobby Glenn at Rowdy Lizard for uh, sending in their offensive line questions, kind of detailing, you know, where do we see the run game going? Will it be more like the first season under Dan Mullen? Will it be more like last season uh, when it didn't really live up to uh, what we Thought it, you know, it just never really came about. Uh, it never looked like uh, the first season uh, for Dan Mullen there, and you know how much emphasis will be on, on run blocking uh, this spring. And so, um, going to here, um, so basically also asking us, you know, how do we see this group shaking out? So first of all, uh, I think more experience always helps and should at least provide a baseline boost for for the offensive line group. Will but. You know, too many times last year where they just looked lost. Uh, they'd get to a second level, not know what to do, where to go, who to block. Uh, if, you know, if they got if they got pushed that far. So uh, I do believe just general experience can really help. But you know, mostly the same group from 2017 to 2018 made a jump, even in a new offense, because there was experience in, in just playing the game of football and, pl- and playing together as a group. Uh, and it was a bit of a slow start that season, but you know, by season's end, the, the Florida offensive line was, was playing really well in the past game, protecting Felipe Franks and, and opening up holes for Scarlett P. Ryan and Franks. So uh, because of experience, you know, I, I see Stone Forsyth sticking at left tackle, but you know, he, he's got to improve some technique uh, along the way this spring. Uh, so left tackle, I think, is pretty much a shoe in there. 
I think the bigger question becomes, where does Richard Garage uh, line up? The line is much better. We sh- it, it showed last year, much better with him on it. But you know, most of his experience was at left guard. So um, I do think that's, you know, I do think wherever he lines up, it, it really benefits Florida. But do they maybe switch him out at tackle uh, at, at one point, maybe that right tackle spot uh, as well? Brett Hagee's move to center doesn't really bother me. Uh, if that's what happens, as, as he has so much experience in, in this offense and playing the game of football, as now his third year uh, in this offense, I don't know why he seemed to drop off a little bit last year. Like I said, the group as a whole didn't live up to an expectation. Um, but you know, if there was one guy I thought this offensive line could count on last season uh, to be a rock there and a rock this year, you know, it would have, and it's going to be him. Uh, but he struggled. He struggled along with the rest of them. So we'll see how much of a, a change he has to make uh, when he does. With the, the thought is he's going to be playing center uh, this coming up year. Ethan White showed up in the starting lineup late last season. Played really well for a true freshman uh, there at right guard. He's a shoe in pretty much there, and, and really looking at from him, you know, how much he can improve with another year strength and conditioning, uh, along with more experience. Um, as he continues his progression since he got a lot of his playing time late in the season last year. So now the right tackle, uh, I know a sore spot for many. I, I don't know what happens there. You know, does Gene DeLance improve so much from last season that, that he can keep his spot there? And, you know, Going against everything Will I just said about experience, does redshirt freshman Michael Tarquin, uh, the coaches were high on him late last season, or one of the true freshmen, Isaiah Walker or Joshua Braun, cracked the rotation Experience is nice and all, uh, but sometimes talent trumps all those, uh, and those guys may see the, their way onto the playing field to help out there. So that's asking a lot uh, of their early enrollees, uh, Walker and Braun, to come out there and, and force playing time. But they came you know, to Florida as highly rated prospects, ready to play. So to me, this spring is about getting past the fundamentals so much because you do have a lot of experience coming back with you know, a group of four guys, five guys there as compared to last year building the experience of last season and work on the things that plagued this group last season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things you see is from the transition recruiting year for Dan Mullen, you know, Richard Garage was the most talented offensive lineman in that class. Did not make a huge impact in the 2018 season, but then the 2019 season played significant minutes. So in that second year in the system was able to come in and contribute. You look at a guy like Noah Banks, who also came in in that in that season. He was going to be a contributor mm-hmm. last year, but then had injuries. And I think that was a big problem for Florida. I think they were really relying on Banks and having him be injured was a real problem. You had Blake, who struggled at right guard a little bit and then transferred halfway through the year. And then you got Griffin McDowell, um, you know, who, who was a center transfer, a guy who, or not transfer, a center recruit who had uh, been committed to Mississippi State originally and then decided to come to Florida. So so there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of numbers. There weren't a whole lot of high talent level guys who could be relied on from that 2018 class. And then last year, you look at Ethan White. We started to see him make some contribution towards the end of the year. And then you mentioned guys like Tarkin, guys like Herod, um, you know, guys like Riley Simons even in Kingsley Guacuan. Those are guys who I think you're going to be able to see push some of the guys like Gene DeLance, Stone Forsyth, um, and even Brett Heggie in some respects as well. Like push those guys to be better because in their second year, understanding the 
the uh, the system is really going to help. So one of the things I like doing is so Football Outsiders has a a bunch of different offensive line stats, but one stat that I really like is opportunity rate. And the reason I like that is in the running game, it's really trying to define the percentage of carries in which the line does its job. And Florida ranked 125th out of 128 teams, 128 teams last year in terms of doing its job as the offensive line. And and when you're not doing your job, typically what happens is you get replaced. But last year, they didn't really have the bodies. They didn't have guys with experience to replace them. I think this year they're going to have that, not only with the guys that they have that they brought in in the 2020 class, but guys that they brought in the 2019 class as well. And, and John Havasey has a really good track record of seeing improvement year to year. It's one of the reasons why I think we should be encouraged at the running game being successful in that game against Virginia, because with a little bit of time, getting the line situated with garage and white being the guys who are really in there in that particular game extensively Florida's offensive line played much, much better in that game than they had at any point during the year. Was it perfect? No, absolutely not. But it was better than it had been throughout the year against a pretty decent Virginia team. I mean, Virginia wasn't, isn't a top 10 team by any means, but still a pretty decent team. And they were able to run the ball way better than they were during the season. And, and if you look at Florida under McIlwain from 2015 to 2017, averaged 79th in opportunity rate. Hevesy comes in in 2018 in Mullen's first year. All of a sudden, Florida jumps to 17th. Um, they have to replace that entire offensive line. They fall down to 125th. I guarantee you John Hevesy is not going to see that as acceptable, and I suspect there's going to be a pretty significant uptick in terms of the offensive line's ability to do the job that they're tasked to do, and I think that's one of the things that Gator fans should track going through the 2020 season is opportunity rate from football outsiders. Yeah, so the guys I mentioned, I think, are the group that you'll see most of this spring, but the guys Will ended up mentioning in a lot of the depth, those are the guys you want to hear a lot from, the guys we want to see a lot of, because as, as Will said, they're going to either either push those starting five there. You know, like I said, right tackle, I know, just reading the YouTube comments here, Gene Lance is, you know, kind of getting bashed a whole lot. It was the offensive line as a whole uh, wasn't very good last year, but that right side really struggled. Ethan White, as I said, come in late last year, but you know, a lot of those guys will mention there, you know, those are the guys we want to see a, a good bit, a whole lot of this spring and pushing for, pushing for jobs and creating depth there along this Florida offensive line. So that'll do it for this offense uh, in our Q&A uh, session here next week. Nick De La Torre from Gator Country uh, will join me as we answer questions about the defense uh, there. So uh, looking forward to that as we all wrap up our spring preview the week before spring practice uh, as we look at the defense there. So before we go, let's take a quick look at some uh, re recruiting news, recruiting update here uh, on Gators Breakdown. Big week in recruiting, uh, last kind of couple weeks here for the Gators. Two commits last week and junior day coming up this coming up uh, weekend. So uh, Will, Gators get two commitments last week. The newest commit, tight end Gage Wilcox. We kind of previewed this last week. We felt good really uh, about this one. Six foot four, 228 pounds. He was the 248th ranked player on the 24-7 sports composite, the 11th ranked tight end in the country. 24-7 had him ranked as 278th ranked player. Rivals up at 232. ESPN value, valued him at 241. Will his stats from 2019, nine games, 20 catches, 249 yards, seven touchdowns. 20 catches, seven touchdowns. Kind of, you know, without going back and watching and, and looking at a lot of snaps, that's, you know, probably be a, a red zone threat there uh, in the end zone. Big bodied, tight end, receiver, hybrid. 
uh, great body control, likes to go up and get the ball. Uh, Gators get a good one here, Will. Yeah, well, for somebody who's a little bit challenged in this area, his hair is just fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure you can relate, buddy. He's got me me beat there. (laughs) But no, I mean, I I think obviously bringing in Brewster has been has been pretty significant. I mean, we've seen a lot of energy from uh, from not only just the tight end tight end position, but recruiting at Florida overall. And, and, and certainly Wilcox is, is one of those guys. I saw somebody on Twitter. I wish I could give him credit, but I can't remember who did it, but they said he needs to wear, uh, he needs to wear number 12, give Richardson number 15, and then it can be AR 15 to 12 gauge who <laughs> when they're out there playing. So I'm here for it, man. If two yeah. years now, that's what we're here. And I'm, uh, I'm all for it. But now, like you mentioned, six, four, um, you know, sort of. Uh, you mentioned Hernandez earlier. I think if you go back and look at Hernandez's stats, I, or at least his profile, I bet you that they're relatively similar. Now, Aaron Hernandez is a special player when it comes to his ability to ability to do things on the field. Same thing with uh, with with Kyle Pitts. I think it's dangerous to start comparing guys to those guys. But yeah. at the same time, seven touchdowns is seven touchdowns, and one of the areas where Florida has struggled is short yardage. One of the areas where Florida has struggled is in the red zone, not just this year, but in 2018 as well under Mullen, it was really a Felipe Franks run or, or, you know, miss an open guy in the end zone. It was sort of that 2018 offense and, and having a guy who can be a threat in the red zone is a big deal. They run that play where the tight end sort of fakes to block and then goes across the formation. And we haven't seen it be successful very often. Um, and, and hopefully somebody like Wilcox is somebody who can open that up as well. All right. And then um, uh, also a shout out to Larry Scott there too, tight end coach before uh, Tim Brewster. Put in a lot of legwork, a lot of um, work in, in, in making a relationship uh, with Wilcox before he left to become head coach at Howard. So uh, big you know, credit goes to Larry Scott too there for, for opening that door for the Gators and Tim Brewster coming in and just uh, locking it and, and getting that commitment there uh, from Wilcox. Also last week, Will, the Gators get a big commitment, Justin Boone out of Sumter, South Carolina. And when I say big, I mean big. Three-star, uh, strong side defensive end that will be rising uh, if you go out there. Steve Wiltfong for 24-7, their national recruiting analyst, is really big on, um, uh, on Boone here. But 6'5", 250 pounds, 371st ranked player on the 24-7 sports composite, 26th ranked strong side defensive end in the country, uh, second ranked player in the state of South Carolina. Uh, talked to a staff member last week, David Turner is very, very high on this kid and was a target that Turner wanted. Uh, and Charles Powers of 24-7 sports offers this scouting report of Boone, possesses an above average stature and frame for a strong side defensive end has room to add mass once in a college strength program and could ultimately grow into a defensive tackle nearing 300 pounds, plays with physicality and aggression, stands out as an edge-setting run defender, has active hands at the point of attack with the ability to disengage via strength or quickness in moves, shows good effort and speed in chasing down plays in pursuit, productive as a junior, making a good number of plays behind the line of scrimmage, Still progressing as a pass rusher, and we need to continue adding nuance to this game on that front. Projects as a power five level starter with the upside of developing into a NFL draft pick. So will you team him up with fellow top 100 defensive lineman, uh, defensive end Tyreek Sapp? And for the second year in a row, the Gators are getting some beef in the trenches with some high favorable targets uh, still on the board. But reading that scouting report there, and what I like to see from a high school player is setting the setting the edge as a run defender 
that, that's hard to, to me, especially in high school and, and you're much better than everybody. You just, that part of a game takes a lot of discipline. You're not going out there and just trying to make big play after big play and you know, over-pursuing and, and helping the, the opposing offense out. Uh, that's just one little line there that uh, I picked up on that uh, I really like hearing more so than the always in the backfield or, or an aggressive type of player. You're showing that discipline of, of being able to set the edge as a run defender is something I really like. Yeah, I mean, I think the last guy that Florida recruited who had this sort of profile was Malik Langham, and he and he left the program after being part of the initial class with Mullins. So this is a position of need, a position that they really need to fill. Um, you know, two years ago with Bogle and Summerall and, and Diabate, I think they've sort of filled what they need to do to get the pass rushing off the edge. And then even this past year with Antoine Powell uh, being able to do that and then adding guys like Lamar Goods and Gravon Dexter um, and John. Brown at defensive tackle, but what they haven't necessarily brought in is who's going to replace Zach Carter and and some of those guys on the defensive end, and 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 this is a guy who's going to be able to do that. You know, like you said, set the edge, not necessarily be the pass rusher, but be the guy who can occupy offensive linemen to allow the pass rushers to roam free, and that's really a big part of Grantham's three-four defense is having linebackers who can do who can be a be a significant threat to the quarterback because the defensive line is holding up in the run game. And we saw last year in some games where Florida struggled an inability necessarily to set the edge, particularly the LSU game I'm thinking of. Now, obviously, Burrow had a lot to do with that, but Hilaire ran ran wild in that game, and if Florida could have stopped the running game of LSU, it would have made it a lot more difficult for Burrow. So um, guys like this are going to make it di- make it more difficult for the defense, and I think um, recruiting is important at all levels, but one of the places where I think it's become pretty clear that it's ultra, ultra important is the defensive line. And so Florida's building up there, and that's a great thing to see. Yeah, another great thing to see, Will, is this list of players that are going to be on campus this week for the Gators. Uh, it's been quite some time since I've seen a list like this. Uh, I'll just quickly go through names uh, here. I think a lot of this talk would be after the fact, the aftermath of this junior day coming up for the Gators. Some commits on campus, but a lot, a lot of high four-star, five-star talent that would be on the, uh, the, the campus of Florida this week. Four-star quarterback Carlos Del Rio will be on campus along with commit Bashar Smith, uh, Dejon Reynolds as well uh, there. So um, four-star wide receiver Braylon Brown, probably on visiting March 6th. Uh, four-star wide receiver right here in Jacksonville, Marcus Burke. Uh, it looks right now to be a Florida-Georgia battle there. So Florida trying to make inroads there. Uh, me being here in Jacksonville, I'll do what I can, Gator fans. But uh, <laughs> that's uh, one big-time player to look out for. Also four-star wide receiver Ramilla Brinson. Uh, Gage Wilcox, commit, will be on campus as well. Uh, another tight end uh, that the Gators are looking good for right now is Nick Elsness, decommitted from Penn State earlier this week, also from here in Jacksonville at Episcopal High School. Uh, his head coach is Mark Brunell, former Jag quarterback. I uh, work with Brunell uh, sometimes too. So if and when Elsness commits, uh, some good analysts I'll be able to, to pull from uh, Mark Brunell there. Uh, five-star offensive tackle uh, Marius Mims will be on campus. Four-star offensive tackle Michael Morris. Two big targets for the Gators there along the offensive line. Uh, Javante Gardner, a Florida commit, will also be on campus. Moving to the other side of the ball, uh, weak side defensive end, outside linebacker Keanu Colt, uh, uh, Coat will be on campus as well. As long as, you know, big-time target here, uh, to me, Satellier from IMG. Gators look really good uh, for him right now. Uh, big-time Tyreek Sapp, uh, defensive lineman, of course. Kishon Silver, another name to look out for. 
and maybe, you know, looking good for the Gators right now. Highly, highly ranked defensive lineman out of the state of North Carolina. Uh, Kishon Silver will be on campus uh, there this coming up weekend. Justice Boone will be uh, a commit we just talked about will be on campus. Uh, kind of rounding this out, five-star defensive tackle Leonard Taylor. Big-time uh, Gators target, uh, looking good uh, right now. Gators in good shape, uh, along with some other schools there uh, for him. Desmond Watson as well. You have uh, Savion Collins, Corey Collier from the Miami Palmetto uh, area. Collins committed to Miami. Collier, um, cornerback safety there for um, from that area, will be on campus. Uh, rounded out, five-star cornerback Jason Marshall, four-star Cornerback Gator commit Clinton Burton, Kamara Wilcoxon as well, a Gator commit, and then Amari Harvey as well. So Will said it many a time, four-star, four-star, five-star, five-star. This 2021 class for the Gators, you know, already ranked second in the nation, mostly due to how many commits they have now, uh, but the talent level is rising and uh, looking good for a lot of the names I just ruled off there. Florida gets just a few of these guys, you know, and it really, I think, you know, sends a message out there that this 2021 class for the Gators may, may, may be the class uh, that we just, when we look at Mullins' tenure, uh, whenever that ends at Florida, the, the class that, you know, maybe everyone will point to and say, okay, there's, there's that difference-making class and because of players like these. And this weekend, so huge in making inroads for a lot of those guys. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, th- I think Mullen's been making steady progress in the recruiting trail. They've been getting better and better and better in terms of blue chip ratio, in terms of the overall average rating. One thing I will caution people on is last year's recruiting class had an average 24-7 rating of 90.7. This year's recruiting class right now, though it's ranked second, ranks 90.8. So the talent level of the guys that they already have committed, and they've got 13 guys, um, the talent level of those guys is very similar to what they had last year. Now, I mean, last year's class is a top top 10 class i think wound up ranked eighth at the end of the day so it's not it's not like it's it's uh it's chopped liver or anything but for comparison ohio state has 10 commits and the average commit rankings 95.61 clemson has nine commits the average rankings 95.51 so that's really the class that florida's trying to get into so texas 94.15 oregon 92.33 so there are teams out there that have um that have higher talent level profiles and just don't have as many commits. Um, but this is Florida's opportunity, right? To impress those guys who are coming to campus, the guys that you listed off and you get, you know, three, five stars to commit. And all of a sudden your ranking is going to be 95 real quick. So um, it doesn't take a whole lot of top 100 guys to, to shift the perception of your program, to shift the, the talent level of your program. And quite honestly, with the ability that Mullen has shown to deliver with guys who don't have that kind of talent profile, I'm excited to see what he can do when he does start bringing in guys with, you know, once Florida has Ohio state's level of talent with Dan Mullen, at head coach, I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do. Absolutely, absolutely. So big, big time um, uh, com- or, uh, visit list uh, this weekend. Hopefully, we're talking about you know one, two, three, few of these guys um, next week uh, as you know really looking good for Florida. Maybe a commit or two uh, as well. So Gators need to put themselves uh, in probably will be uh, in good shape here. Uh, after this weekend as far as recruiting goes and all the big names uh, that would be on campus and a chance to make an impression on a lot of those guys making a return visit some guys on campus for the first time a really good shot here for the Gators to uh, you know inject uh, the talent level uh, with a lot of those guys on that list so Will uh, as you mentioned earlier uh, of course you uh, put out uh, your latest uh, at the reading and reaction uh, today uh, detailing Kyle Trask and maybe the the next step in, in this offense 
Um, anything else you want to hit about that or what you got coming up? Uh, you're on vacation next week, right? I, well, sort of. So I have a I have a talk to give for my real job uh, down in Orlando, which means my daughter is on vacation with my <laughs> my parents down at Disney while I'm doing real work. That's but, right. Uh, Not a but, vacation for you. But yeah, so I I wrote, I wrote about Kyle Trask and what kind of improvements he can take uh, moving forward. Uh, we've hit on a lot of it today, but there's a lot we didn't hit on in terms of um, there was some film stuff that I looked at in there. So certainly go take take a look. Um, let me know what you think and and um, you know sort of my expectations for what I'm expecting to see out of him in 2020 and what that means for Florida. I I think there are some specific things that you can take from the trends that you see at what defenses that were successful against him, there's a very clear pattern about what they did. And he's either going to have to figure out a way to overcome what, what made him struggle last year or Florida as an offense is going to have to figure out a way to overcome that. And so that's really what the article is about. And then, and then later on this week, Nick is supposed to be back with a, uh, with a follow-up on the, uh, on the Charlie Pell era, he's, he's got like seven different, um, seven different articles in the series he's working on, but he's working hard to get some good interviews for people um, from that era. So I'm excited to see what he's going to have coming out next, hopefully later this week. All right. And that is over at read and reaction.com where you can check out uh, Will's work there. You can follow Will on Twitter at Will Miles SEC. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.